Welcome to KUOW's Speakers Forum. I'm Kendra Hanna, filling in for John O'Brien. In this episode, Kat Chow is a writer, journalist, and founding member of NPR's Code Switch team. In her new book, Seeing Ghosts, she tracks the ways grief and loss have touched her family across decades. In 2004, when Chow was 13, her mother died of terminal cancer. She writes not only about the after effects of that loss, but of the woman who raised her as a character and as a person. Kat's mother was a lover of practical jokes with a sometimes dark sense of humor. When she was nine years old, she told Chow that when she eventually dies, she'd like to be stuffed and taxidermized so she could sit and watch her daughter. Chow is a graduate of the University of Washington. Several scenes in Seeing Ghosts take place at the UW, and some of the book itself was written during her time in Seattle. Fitting for a book about how events can reach through time, Chow is in conversation with two of her former professors. Leilani Nishimi is the author of Undercover Asian and a professor of communications at the University of Washington. Sean Wong is also a professor there in English and the author of Home Base in Americanese. Elliott Bay Book Company presented this conversation on August 31st. It's um, really meaningful to be on this Zoom with two of my professors from UW. Sean and Leilani, it's so cool to have you here. I could have only... Um, I don't think I could have even imagined that this would have been a possibility 10 years ago when I was your student. Uh, one, that I would have written a book that I was so proud of, but then also that um, I'd get to talk about it with both of you at the same time on this thing called Zoom. <laughs> um, but what's really exciting is in a way, this book has been um, more than a decade in the making, whether I knew it or not. And Seattle, as Rick was mentioning, was so pivotal to how I was shaped as a writer, not even just in terms of the craft itself, but um, just the close read of American, Asian American studies, which I learned from Leilani and I learned from Sean. Um, and so I will be reading um, a portion of my book that comes from um, sort of the last section and it is set in Seattle and um, I'll be jumping around a little bit, but hopefully it won't be too hard to follow. I was heading into my dorm when a stretch of sirens sounded off in the distance and approached campus. I would later learn that a man named Insu Chun had stopped along the oversized concrete and brick platforms in Red Square near the university president's office. For a couple of years, Chun worked for the university as a custodian. Among the throng of students meandering to their next class, he doused himself with gasoline, then he lit himself on fire. The school newspaper published a photo of Chun engulfed in flames. Seeing this image all these years later, I feel a similar revulsion and need to click away from the screen. A crowd of students surrounds a blazing mass, which upon first glance is easy to mistake for anything besides Chun's engulfed body. Students dump water on Chun and try to beat away the flames with their jackets. Everybody looks in motion, bodies leaning toward Chun. Why did he do it? Many asked afterward. The university's narrative, which most seemed to accept, was that Chun was mentally unstable. A few people online wondered, though, if Chun's self-immolation was a form of protest. They mentioned that Chun was Korean implying there might be something cultural at play. I wasn't satisfied with these theories, certainly not the latter. I did not know enough to draw any conclusions, 
But for weeks, I kept surfacing Chun's story in all of my conversations. Don't you just keep thinking about that man? I found myself saying to new friends, the guy I was starting to date, people I met on campus or at parties. I don't know, they said. They entertained me for a few minutes before they slid us towards safer topics, as though talk of death was contagious. A few years later, one of my friends will write about In Su Chun for the school's paper. Chun was in his 60s and worked for two and a half years as a custodian for the university. Chun had left behind a manifesto that revealed that he thought the university had a covert drug and prostitution ring and that there were Korean operatives who had infiltrated the custodial department. He was certain that he was being monitored. He also wrote that he had since 1987 seriously suffered with a thought disorder and a brain slash and a sudden blackout and memory loss. I couldn't articulate why his death stuck with me. His circumstances were different from my parents, but something about him brought them to mind and the way they seemed alone in their interior lives. There was the obvious connection that they were all immigrants, but there was also the way in which their needs in life had slipped beyond notice. How Chun returned me to a defensive stance so bothered by how easy it was to look past stories like his. A week after Chun's death, I woke in the middle of the night, sweaty and fevered. In a panic, I burst into the hall, freshly nightmared. I ran into a girl I'd chatted casually with a few times. She lived a few rooms down on what my friends and I deemed the quiet side of the floor, where everybody kept their doors closed so, so they could study. She unlocked the communal bathroom's door. Can you tell me that I'm not dreaming? I floated into the bathroom after her. I just had a nightmare that I was possessed. I paced frantically by the showers. Can you please tell me that I'm awake? She led me to a bench by the sinks, still carrying her bathroom caddy. You're awake, she said. Her voice soothed me. I fanned my t-shirt and took deep breaths. It was In Su Chun's death that had me so bothered, I was certain. I would not realize until a week later after visiting the medical clinic on campus that the stomach pains I had experienced for the past weeks were symptoms of a kidney infection. You're okay, you're okay, she repeated. You're okay. It only occurs to me now that I had wanted somebody to tell me that for years. Your death warped me. I had not realized that all this time I had taxidermized myself. My grief had entombed me in my emotions. It made me hyper attuned to the ways we exchange our bodies for ash. Thank you. <sighs> well. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes, it is. This, uh, I actually really um, was struck by that, that particular passage. And I think I remember from way back when, one of the first conversations we had was about that particular incident. Yeah, it was so impactful. I mean, not to linger too long on it, but I mean, that happened my freshman year of college at the UW. And I think one of the things I understood and could not put to words was just the kind of loneliness that it, it you know, it left in me. And I think that I saw that in so many versions of stories about Asian Americans or immigrants. Um, and I think that was one of the things that kind of drew me to the both of you, honestly, and, and your work, Homebase for Sean and Leilani, all of the research that you've done over the years. 
And I think why I craved um, conversations with both of you. Um, some, some context, um, one of the things that I did in college, especially toward the end, was I took on a lot of internships that I needed, <laughs> I needed credit for. And so, uh, or that I, that I needed time to actually do. And so one of the ways I did it was um, I did these honors thesis projects where Sean and Leilani were both my advisors. And for like two or three years, I would just go to your offices once a week and we would just have these hour long conversations about anything. And that was really um, formative to how I write and how I think about the world. Yeah, I would say um, that's very true. I remember, um, Kat, you coming to my office and for her, your project, I said, you know, what would you like to do for your project? And you go, I'm going to write a novel. <laughs> and, and I think, of course, you know, in my most condescending way, okay, sure. Let's do that. Uh, Let's you know, do you, that. You want to encourage your students. And then, uh, and then you went ahead and actually did that. Um, so uh, hats off to you. And um, But getting back to your uh, reading, um, uh, one of the things that really impressed me uh, about the book, it's not just a memoir uh, about your mother, obviously, and your family, but you, it's, like a, it's like travel writing. Uh, you know, you explore... Uh, loss and grief and, and death. And the example you chose, of course, is, is this man who immolated himself. Um, and it's almost like a, a strategy for the rest of us. You know, um, we're not only reading your personal story, but we're also, you know, many of us have experienced loss and grief and mourning. And, 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 and I think your book also serves as a kind of um, strategic journey for the rest of us to see how we can travel that journey uh, with our own memories. And, and so many of the reviews of your book, uh, the reviewers do something that they don't normally do, which is talk about their own loss. And I think that book, the book kind of draws that out of us because that's our connection to your story. And it's very effective, I thought. Oh, yeah. thank you for saying that. That means a lot. I mean, um, I knew when I wrote this that I wanted to be able to write in a way that didn't necessarily follow, you know, a chronological order, but it allowed, but, you know, writing in a way that would allow me to not only trace memories of my father and my mother and um, my sisters and, and the losses that shaped my family over generations, but um, I wanted to be able to demonstrate sort of the lens through which I see the world and how I make sense of not just grief, but I think loss in general, loss of, um, you know, loss of people, place, country, or a sense of self too. Um, and I found that to be one of the the biggest driving things that, that helped propel my work. Yeah. And I think it reflects, reflects a certain kind of thinking, even in that, what you just read, Right there's a way in the book that you sort of return to memories, and um, we we see them um, sort of in the moment, but also how you understand them now as you go back to it. Right, so that moment in the bathroom where you're like, "So I thought it was about this. I realized that I was sick, and now I'm re remembering that entire story again from now as I'm sitting here writing this." And yeah, so it's kind of multiple layers going on at the same time. Yeah, thank you for noticing that. I think one of the things I really wanted to do was try and ground it from a more current narrator um, who 
can then sort of correct memories as it is. Um, and actually one of the things that I sort of skipped over because it was it made the chapter or excerpt too long was um, I mentioned in this little excerpt about In Su Chun um, reading or watching um, the, the Wayne Wang film, A Thousand Years of Good Prayer, Leilani, which you had recommended me and which I wrote part of my honors thesis about. And it was really fascinating, not to make this whole conversation about my time at the UW with you two, but I mean, it could be, <laughs> but um, it was it was interesting because, you know, one of the things I was doing in this chapter was thinking about this movie, which is so much, it, which is based off of a short story by Yian Lee, um, A Thousand Years of Good Prayer. And it's so much about this uh, character named Elon and her father figure and the ways that there are just there's just so much distance between them and I remember reading that as a 20 year old and thinking that so much of that story was about language differences and I was probably fixated on my own ability to speak Chinese which Sean I know we've also spoke we also have spoken a lot about over the years um and this character also who you know was just the language differences between them um but as an adult I realize now the other layers that were just so apparent. And so I wanted to include that. And, you know, this chapter for that reason was one of the hardest ones for me to write um, in terms of trying to show the different perspectives of thought and how, how a brain can kind of mature. I think that uh, that's a great comment. I, I think one of the things I wanted to ask was, you know, your training as a reporter and, and on NPR, you bring in your memoir, you bring a lot of people into the conversation. It's almost as if you're <clears throat> interviewing them, you know, like Ann Chang and Diana yeah. Nguyen, you know, you bring other people's take on grief and loss into the conversation as a, as a kind of, uh, along with, uh, uh, in your journey through, through your own memoir. And, um, and I see what you just said as sort of an example of yeah, that. Yeah, thank you. I mean, it was, I think the reason why, one of the many reasons why this book was hard was because I needed to figure out a framework for this. And I think that as a reporter and also just as someone who likes to procrastinate, um, one of the <laughs> ways that I uh, prepare um, and the thing that I like to do most you know, aside from write is to just research and read a lot and talk to people. And um, one of the really helpful books, or actually two of the really helpful books that um, helped craft Seeing Ghosts was, um, I have it right here on my bookshelf, um, Racial Melancholia um, by David Eng and Shinhee Han. And then um, The Melancholy of Race by Anne Anlin Cheng, Sean, which you just brought up. And I knew that I was chasing this feeling, kind of like what I was saying about In Su Chun and having his death just resonate so much with me. Um, and so I understood that for the past 10 years or so, I needed to try and lean on my ability as a reporter to kind of pull in all of this research, but also form an argument. Because I think one of the things that this book does is it examines the question of what is it that we owe um, in terms of what do we owe in death or what do we owe to our parents? Um, but it also tries to, um, well, make a few arguments about loss as it relates to race or, you know, being the daughter of two immigrants from Hong Kong. 
um, and how it's just so pervasive and not just tied to one single person. Yeah. Yeah. I think um, uh, if I can ask one more question here. Um, yeah. Uh, the example you gave actually covers a lot of ground. And the other one is the immigrant. And, and in, you know, in your book, you write the immigrant family tries to preserve a history and a life that the surrounding resist. They try to invent a new way of being while always seeking a home within the negative space. You know, what you read actually sort of supports that so, so beautifully. But it's also this idea of naming. You know, we Chinese have a lot of names. Uh, <laughs> and, and you actually go through that, you know, like your mother the name is Florence, right? But yeah. it's actually, you know, something else and so-and-so. And so that's that idea, I think a great example of that, of immigrant family, you know, trying to, to belong in the space in which the, that sort of resists them at the same time. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly what I was trying to show. Um, while also focusing not too much on, I mean, so much of this book is about survival too, in terms of, how my father tried to survive and, and make a life for himself and how his own upbringing um, influenced and shaped that. But um, same with my mom. But I also wanted to show the joys and the little quirks of each of them. Um, yeah. It's funny that we that um, you both mentioned, or Sean, you mentioned the novel that I was working on um, because I, think I, I don't think I could have written this book had it not been for that novel, which you both have read uh, many years ago in, in very uh, draft form. <laughs> I see us all kind of what? smiling. You gave us you gave us both the same homework? No, you did a totally different project <laughs> for me. I was, this was, this was I know, fun. but I still I still had you I still had you read it, Leilani. Um, I don't know. I just think that I've I've always kind of been reaching toward um, yeah. you know these portrayals and it just, it took me a long time to be able to craft them. So it's very surreal to be talking about this now. We, we spent a long time, a lot of time talking about your father. We did. <laughs> Both the real version as well as the fictional version. Yes, yes, we did. And I think talking for a decade and a half about a character can really help bring them to life in many, many ways. Yeah. Um, Thank you. Yeah. So, well, thank you both for all of those <laughs> hundreds of hours <laughs> over the years of conversations. Yeah, I was actually interested in how, how much your dad became central in the book, right? I mean, it, it starts off being about your mom and a lot of the, you know, the, kind of the, the stuff in the back or when you're, when I, the first lines of all the reviews are about your mother. Um, but it seems like this is really so much your dad's story. So kind of. Did, did something change as you were writing it? Was that always your intent? I think that I knew this story was going to be about both parents. And I wasn't quite sure how to, um, when I first set off writing, um, how to really signal to people that this is a book about my family. I think that's why I don't love calling this book a memoir about grief, because then they immediately latch on to the fact that it's about my mother's passing. But um, I really understood pretty early on in the process. And it was because of my editor, Maddie Caldwell at um, Grand Central Publishing. She had pointed out that there were so many parallels between my mother and me in terms of being the youngest child and also in terms of having a mother die young and having all these worries about the body. 
Um, but that there were also quite a few similarities and parallels between my father and me too. And it was then that I was able to really try and figure out how to tell each of my parents' stories and sort of weave, you know, the questions that I have. And another reason why my dad simply became such a big part of this too is because he is the carrier of so much family history while also being a person who doesn't necessarily want to talk about it or readily talk about it. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's where a lot of the tension within the story comes where, um, in one section, I have just a transcript of me asking him questions about how he identifies and what terms he uses if he calls himself American or Chinese because I had just graduated from college and I needed people to be able to label themselves apparently. And um, he sort of refused any of those labels. And the conversation is quite short, but it really quickly dives into his idea of what success looks like or um, you know, the American dream. And I thought that would be a really fascinating, fascinating way of examining that concept without being too heavy handed about it. And so there were just so many moments like that where my dad just became this really interesting figure and um, his history in general makes for really wonderful writing and storytelling where his father was one of um, many uh men who in the 1920s or 1930s left the Pearl River Delta to um, work in Havana, Cuba because of the Chinese Exclusion Act, uh, not allowing Chinese immigrants to the US. Um, so because of that, I mean, that was what directed him to Havana. And so, I mean, this is like a very long tangent, but I mean that I just found these questions so compelling. And um, it was also just the idea of seeing within him this longing that I, I couldn't understand for myself and that he also seemed to just hold so close. So this book is a lot about distance between parents, but um, also wanting to, in a way, understand him to understand my own grandparents as well. Um, I love, actually, I really love the dialogue that you have in there, the quotes from there. And um, you know, you're, you're, your dad's a master at avoiding <laughs> I mean, I, I really felt as I was reading in some ways, I, there was a much clearer lens somehow when you're looking at your mom than with your dad, there somehow that um, he's almost more inaccessible yeah. mother, even though your mother's passed. It's a, it's a kind of an interesting paradox you have going on there. Yeah, no, thank you for saying that. I mean, I think I realized partway through that I was writing about him as a ghost too. Um, and that one of the things that I kept channeling was this idea as, um, and I talk about this a lot with friends who also have parents who are immigrants. I think there's this moment where you just become so protective over them, or I felt this need to not just, I mean, not mother him, but take care of him and um, worry about him. And I think the way this manifested as I was writing this story was, understanding, especially that our time was like, that our time was not infinite. Um, and so in a way, I, I knew that this book would also kind of become a memorial to him. Yeah. Yeah, I think the book, you know, is not only about absence, but also presence. Mm. And, and um, one of the things that uh, the children immigrants often do is speak for their parents, you know, <laughs> because, you know, they yeah. adjust culturally to the yeah 
to the language and to the to the cultures uh, so readily, and and they sort of take over that role often. Um, and so I see your book kind of serving as that as well. You know the the puzzle that your father is, and 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 um, you're you making a living uh, in a language that uh, you know many of your family were not native to is is an act of speaking for them and making them more present, right? Um, yeah. And uh, um, and that's a very um, you know, that goes back to that quote I mentioned too about the, you know, the, the, the negative space and, and trying to just belong in the country that you live in or you were born in. And so I thought that was really uh, effective because for, for, your, for your father's portrayal, there are no easy answers. Right. Because you know, it's in flux. You know, he's present yeah. and, yeah. and uh, there are contradictions and you know, like taxidermy, not working. Uh, you can't really look it up on YouTube. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I watched so many YouTube videos of that. <laughs> but, you know, um, the, yeah. the, the present is always in flux and, and, yeah. uh, and, and it's not as uh, sort of permanent as, as loss. Yeah, I, I love that read of it. I mean, I think the present is always in flux is is so true. And um, one of the things that I wanted to do, I think probably to, I mean, well, one of the things that I wanted to do when I was writing was, um, so readers will quickly learn that this book is essentially structured around this concept of a ghost, um, the ghost of my mother who takes this taxidermic form. And it's a little bit playful. It's very macabre. Um, I'm glad that it seems to be resonating with some people. Uh, when I was actually trying to tell an acquaintance about this, when I was writing the book a few years ago, uh, I felt so bad because I realized partway through the conversation that she grew really quiet and started to shift uncomfortably in her seat. And finally, she asked me if I actually had my mom taxidermied and stuffed in my apartment. <laughs> uh, because the joke was that um, when my mom was, uh, you know, when she was alive, she had joked with me once about wanting to wanting to have me have her body stuffed and put in my future apartment when she passed. And we had never known that we didn't know that she was terminally ill at the time. But anyway, so I realized that this was a device that I needed to hone much better after that conversation with that acquaintance. But um, it, I was just so drawn to this idea because it's so visceral. Um, and I think that ghosts in general and the ways they haunt and the ways they come back in our memory, um, could be a really playful way to signify loss and how it can kind of slip back into your imagination so quickly. Um, but the taxidermic element too, that you, you brought up, Sean, I thought that was a beautiful metaphor for grief and mourning and the ways we always try to preserve something and, um, the sort of paradox that we have in that the thing that you are trying to preserve when you taxidermy something is uh, a living animal. You're trying to capture its essence from when it was breathing um, and when its heart was beating. And that, of course, is so impossible. Um, and I found that also to be very layered because it felt as though in a way with writing, I was trying to, you know, create taxidermy too. Um, and so 
it just became something that I was so drawn to just peeling away and trying to unpack. Yeah. If people are wondering whether they should buy their book, our last conversation about taxidermy should be the reason you buy this book. Exactly. There, there are so many questions left unanswered on the table here. There's so many questions. And one question that I will definitely not answer is whether or not the ghosts are real or imagined. I want the reader to just decide right. that for themselves. You're going to have to buy the book to find out more about taxidermy. Yes, it does surface several times. So, and I actually really, I, I do really love your use of taxidermy because of the way that it's funny too, right? That it's, it's odd and funny and like, why? It's like, kind of like, why do we have taxidermy? And there's, you know, there's all these ways that it, it doesn't really do what we're hoping it's going to do. And, right. Um, yeah. I really like the way that it, you sort of inject humor through so much of the, of your writing. Um, so, and, and I'm always curious about how writers do that, right? There's a book about grief, yeah. but it's funny. Um, like, I love, I love this cover. I, I feel like it really embodies a lot of the, like what's going on in the, in the book. So can you talk a little bit about writing with humor in your. Yeah. Well, first of all, I'm so flattered that you think it's funny. I was so worried when I submitted this book to my editor that it was just profoundly messed up and, um, <laughs> that nobody would understand it or that it would be, um, very heavy. And, um, I really wanted to capture my family's playfulness and the wryness and the ways in which we all sort of inherited my father's dryness and my mother's uh, cheekiness, so to speak. And I think I did that by really leaning on their idiosyncrasies where, you know, my father and his loud speaking voice um, and my mother and her teeth face and the way she can't wink. So she blinks with both eyes. And I wanted especially these traits in my mother to be, um, you know, to, to sort of return in her ghost form and to have it be a little bit strange and and perhaps off, off putting and it would sort of throw the reader off balance. Um, but as a writer too, it was just really fun to conjure my mother this way um, and to think about her sort of in a form that wasn't quite as tragic as mm -hmm. she was, you know, in her last moments. And in a way it was sort of a defense mechanism too, because I wanted to insist that my mother was not just the circumstance of her death, um, that she could live on and that she could be something completely new. And I found that really special as a writer. Yeah. Did you find as a, a, a reporter, in some ways, when writing a book like this, you have to interview your mother. Mm -hmm. and, uh, but as, uh, because she's not here, yeah. you have to provide the answers too. You're asking her questions, but providing answers or asking other family members to answer for you. Was, was that part of the process? Oh, that's a really good question. I have never thought of it that way. That kind of gave me chills because um, one of the hardest parts of writing this book that that hurt, actually, it was very painful, was understanding all of the things I would never be able to ask her. Right. Um, and the ways that some of these things are just unknowable. And I think that's why I tried to write into the uncertainty um, of for example, there's one passage I'm thinking about where I'm trying to, where I'm, I'm 13 and I'm watching my mother in one of her last conversations with her sister and her brother. And they're speaking in Cantonese, which is a dialect I, I don't understand fluently. And 
as the writer now trying to reconstruct their conversation, I realized that I'm so ill-equipped, both in terms of how my mother spoke Cantonese, also just, I don't know that much Cantonese. And then also I, I just can't remember. And so I'm guessing and I'm supplying words and maybe one of the phrases she used was her stomach hurt. And so she said like she had a toe tongue, but as an adult, I realized that she probably wouldn't have said that because that was language that she used to speak to me as a child. <laughs> That's sort of like baby talk. And I sort of tried to capture how that felt as, um, you know, this, this inability to sort of write her into being. Um, right. And so in some ways she kind of feels incomplete, but also I think my attempt was at least to capture the longing around that. Yeah, I definitely could see that in the early parts of the book. You yeah. Know, and then, you know, as a writer myself, I tried to imagine, you know, the process they're going through. And, and yeah, you know, that was one of the questions I wanted to ask because it just seems so, uh, so difficult, a difficult position to be in. Yeah. I mean, I think I, I did interview, you know, her family and, um, old coworkers and each time I would learn something new about her right. um, and have to try and understand it from their perspectives because I mean I only knew her as a child right. and um, so trying then to weave in these different portrayals of her was as if I was meeting someone new um, and that was a gift also and really hard <laughs> uh, because sometimes it you know it, it, it just expanded my sense of her. Yeah you have to try to imagine the adult life she was living that you weren't privy to, you know, right. that was that you one couldn't see or didn't want to see, or, you know, just unable to see from your position as a child. And so you have to reconstruct that as a writer, what the adult version of your mother was that at the time you were a child. Yeah. Most certainly. Uh, I know it's shocking, but adults don't often tell all their children everything. Yeah. <laughs> 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 Um, so it looks like uh, we have a, a prompt here in the chat for people who are interested in um, asking questions. You can go to the Q&A um, button down here at the bottom of the screen and you could um, ask questions there anonymously or you can put them in the chat if you're interested. And you can ask almost any question um, and you can ask questions to Sean and Leilani about what type of student I was. I don't know. <laughs> Excellent, excellent. Excellent. She got all A's. <laughs> uh, I got all A's. Now, I mean, I, I basically, you know, preferred office hours with, with you two to <laughs> taking other classes. So they, they weren't actually office hours. It was uh, what I always refer to as writing therapy. <laughs> yeah. Uh, um, okay. So we actually do have a couple of questions. Okay. Well, one of them is, um, how does grief transform us in ways we never imagined? Oh, that's interesting. I think, you know, one thing that I understood was this book was going to be about a protracted grief um, stretched over so many years. And when I was a young child, I think I felt that, you know, very conflicted over how to consider this grief of my mother. Um, but one of the transformative things that I've seen as an adult is just how it stays with us over years and how the person who is no longer with us 
evolves with us over the years and how memory and the memories we have of them just they're, they're not stagnant. Um, and I was having a conversation with someone um, actually yesterday for another book event. And the way she talked about memory was really interesting. Um, this was Coral from um, uh, Bookshop Santa Cruz. And she basically said that for her, in her eyes at least, memories are basically the last time we've ever thought or considered something. And so the memory of my mother is actually really, you know, the memory of the last time I thought about her or so, so like, it, it's just so specific. And she sort of talked about how um, sometimes it, it made her hesitant to even want to remember someone or think about a specific instance in her life. And I found that really profound because so much of this book was about wanting to turn away from our past and wanting to turn away from history and observing the ways my father did that and observing the ways my mother did that and trying to pull these thoughts out of them and to try to build this archive. Um, and so it was really important for me to show the ways that we in reinterpret these ideas over and over and over again. And that, that can be really comforting. Yeah. I think one of the things that's interesting is that because you have a father and sisters, you know, one of the interesting things about the book is that that grief is shared, you know, and, and a lot of times people aren't able to sort of have that support system. And, and I think one of the things that really came through in your book is how family operates, you know, in that, in that vacuum. And, and yeah. I thought that was really valuable and, um, will give readers that kind of strategy of how um, uh, even a family that has, you know, some quirks, <laughs> uh, but, but uh, it, uh, it really, uh, that's one thing that really came out is how, uh, how that family structure holds up in the face of something of a trauma like this. And, yeah. Well, can we, can we give a shout out to home base? I mean, that was one of the, <laughs> John's like, of course we can talk about home base, but um, it was, it was one of the, you know, when I met you in 20, 2009 or so, that was one of the books that I found so profound. Um, so spare in its portrayal of loss. Um, and I think that the family structure that you write about just, has always kind of stuck with me in terms of um, it's just a very searching book. And so I you. really appreciated that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the, um, the other thing I think is uh, um, that aspect of, um, uh, I wanted to sort of get back to uh, Diana Wynn for a second, you know, yeah. and, um, that, uh, you know, if people who haven't read her book, she, um, um, the, the image that you give to us in your book is that she, her brother had committed suicide and she takes these family pictures and uh, cuts her brother out of the picture in order to, to understand his loss. Um, and I thought that visual representation of, of how that relates to your uh, story was really very effective in the book. Oh, thank you. Yeah. So what Sean is referring to is this beautiful collection by Diana Coy Wynn. It's called Ghost Of. Um, and I think it 
it might have won her the Whiting Award um, and a National Book Award nomination. I'm not, I'm, I can't remember. Um, but I found just the way she wrote about loss um, and she's talking about working in these negative spaces and um, she has this, she gave this interview where she spoke about um, being afraid to look at family photos because she was afraid of the absence that she would see and how it was important for her to inhabit them. And I found that so striking and so painful and so, so full of all of the feeling, all of the things that I was trying to channel with seeing ghosts. Um, and so in a way, a lot of this book is, is in conversation with her work. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I felt like your book had a lot of those kinds of moments too, where there's a, a really strong image. Um, there's something very visual. I mean, you include photographs as well, Yeah. but it seems like those kinds of um, moments, these kind of visual moments really um, are important for the book. And they really stuck with me. And one of the ones that I keep going back and thinking about, you, you describe um, your, your brother's um, headstone, hmm. which, uh, your father removed and put in the backyard, I guess for safekeeping. Um, yeah. And it, these vines were growing over it and it just was such a striking image. I wonder if you could talk about that a little bit more and why it's significant for you. Yeah, um, one of the things that I really wanted to include and pay careful attention to in the book was all of the imagery around memorials or headstones. My mother's lack of a headstone, my brother's tombstone that was transported to our yard um, after his body was removed and um, cremated to be reburied with my mother. And I, I loved sort of the uncanniness of showing how it felt to have this tombstone in a residential neighborhood. Um, and I loved the idea of showing the imagery of my father's garden, just running amok over the stone and the way his type of loss and type of grieving could feel so wild and overgrown, but how beautiful in particular that was for him. Um, and so again, throughout the book, there are so many different images of cemeteries or, um, you know, whether it's a historical cemetery in Hartford, Connecticut, where a man named Young Wing is buried, or whether it's the uh, enormous tombstone of a uh, man who was struck and killed by lightning, Londorsa, whose wife, Neva, created a very strange memorial to him that she could sort of peel back to see his face. I really wanted to make each of these moments and each of these scenes really striking for the reader um, so that it could sort of drive home, hopefully, the, the idea of, um, the objects that mark us are, they, they might feel permanent, but the meanings that we layer on them are so dependent on, on who we are and the circumstances in which we come from. Yeah, and I love the way you introduce that particular scene with, you know, you're, you're talking about I was taking out the garbage and I like walked by it as I was taking out the garbage. It just, I just thought it was great the way it kind of um, undercuts maybe some of the- Yeah, yeah, I mean, and. I mean, that, that stone is still there and I still worry that um, neighborhood kids are going to be playing in the yard and see it and really worry, but we'll leave that for when it happens. <laughs> it's, um, it's so Chinese to do that. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, it reminds me of uh, 
uh, I, I teach in Rome and uh, somebody has to do that, but I take study abroad classes there. And, and one of the things that I do is I take them to the Protestant cemetery where Keats and Shelley are buried. Um, and I remember one, one year taking my students there, you know, as a sort of literary journey to go see uh, Keats and Shelley's grave. And, and, uh, and so we tour the Protestant cemetery and we come out and I have them seated and we're sitting there talking. And um, I said, so, you know, what, what are you thinking? And there's just all these blank faces facing me. And I said, um, you do know who Keats and Shelley are, right? And they go, yeah. Um, uh, but it turns out that a majority of them had never been in a cemetery. Oh. And it just didn't, it did not occur to me to prepare them to be in a cemetery. Interesting. You know, wow. Somebody, somebody my age <laughs> has been in a cemetery more times than I can remember. And I looked at them and I go, oh my God, I'm sorry. I, I didn't prepare you to be among the dead. Yeah. Right? And, and, uh, and I, I just sort of thought, okay, let's back up, you know? Yeah. And, and, uh, and so one of the things about your book, uh, not to talk more about my story, but the, one of the things about your book, I don't know if you, you considered it, but you might be speaking to people who never experienced any loss mm. or, or, that level of grief, you know, family grief and trauma. Um, and I just wanted to know if that was something that was on your mind too, or, or if it ever came up between, you know, you know, while during the writing. It actually hadn't. And the story that you just told is, um, it's, it's surprising because it is just so outside my experience, but I can see how that would be right. so stunning. Um, and, maybe disturbing to the students. It, I don't it know. was or, very, very yeah, disturbing. Yeah. Um, and I think that I, I grew up around so much death, but also being quite afraid of it. And so I think my fear of it is probably channeled in a lot of the writing. Um, and so perhaps the irreverent take on it sometimes <laughs> will help readers who are not as tuned in yeah. or experienced with death. But um, yeah, it's so, it's just, it's just so inextricable from my sense of self, um, the way I see loss and the way I see what it means to be the daughter of immigrants from Hong Kong too. Um, yeah. and so it's, it's hard to even just imagine <laughs> outside that perspective sometimes. Yeah. I think it's interesting because, uh, you know, you might find, uh, um, in, um, uh, down the road, you know, either through the virtual book tour or later, you know, when the paperback comes out and you're able to in person, you might come across readers who have no experience um, yeah. uh, with death or loss or e even if, um, especially a family member. Um, and that was one thing that I forgot among my very young students that they haven't experienced that. Yeah. Right? <laughs> yeah. And, and I had to, uh, uh, begin a conversation, you know, much further back, you know, because I was walking through the cemetery, giving a lecture, talking at the top of my voice. And, <laughs> and they had no idea how to act uh, uh, because, <laughs> because I always assumed that everyone has some personal experience, yeah. but they don't. And, and so anyway, part of your, 
your, uh, your part of your book may speak to an audience like that. And I think it also will speak to a lot of, um, well, probably specifically Chinese American readers yes. too. I've already been hearing some really lovely things about just some of the the grief customs and the right. the rituals around burning incense or joss paper, um, which is you know it becomes this thematic element. And when I was writing that, I I knew that I didn't want to write toward explanation um, because I've spent so many years trying to explain. Uh, being a reporter, you know, explain things to people in ways that will make them hopefully more empathetic or just have a basic level of understanding. But for this book, what I loved writing about it so much was how it felt as if I had my own world where I could set the bounds and I could decide, you know, something as simple as I'm not translating any Cantonese, which I'm seeing now is becoming so much more standard among Asian American writers, which is amazing. And it makes me so happy. Um, <laughs> but to not have to have that explanatory comma of, you know, Joss paper, the, <laughs> the thing you burn on Chinese New Year, comma, the holiday that Chinese Americans celebrate, which has no set date yeah. on the Lunar New Year calendar. <laughs> and then until, until finally, you know, the book is just a whole series of explanatory <laughs> commas and you don't really know what you're reading anymore. So in a way also it felt really lovely um, to sort of be writing toward something so specific. Yeah, thank you for that. Yeah. We could maybe take another question from the- Yeah, sure. Chat. Um, so how do you think your mom would have reacted to this book if she was alive today and read it? Ooh, yeah. hmm. well, that that's a really good fun. question. <laughs> Maybe she would have been a little bit annoyed with the things that I wrote about her. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> uh, she probably would have, uh, I bet she would have, I don't know. That's a really hard question. Um, my initial answer is to say that she'd be very proud of me, but who knows? Um, she could be, she, she was um, such a dynamic character. Um, I'd like to think that if she was alive today, I mean, of course, this would be a completely different story, but the stories that we would have received would be tonally probably much different. And um, I think her history would, would come alive in a much different way. Um, I think she would find the sense of humor to be really, hopefully, wonderful. Our Chinese-American parents are disappointed that we're writers and not doctors. I know. <laughs> she would have been mad that I wasn't an equine vet like uh, I'd written about. <laughs> oh, right. That's, that's horseback riding. That I didn't go to Tufts right? University uh, and that I instead went to the University of Washington. There you go. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Sorry, Mom. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think that initial response, though, about how it's really, how can you know, right? And you, and you talk about that a bit in the book, too, that, you know, part of what you, you are trying to, um, I don't know, confront is that your mom's death is part of who you are, right? Part yeah. of what made you who you are, yeah. because what kind of writer you would have been otherwise. Yeah, I mean, it, it, I think it, for me, all goes back to that idea of racial melancholia, um, the Anne Amlin Chang, David Ang, Shin, yeah. Shinhyan. It's just, it's it's become so much of me. Um, when I think about the identities, you know, I mean, of course I identify as Asian American or Chinese American, um, but I also identify 
as somebody who has just experienced so much loss. And it just, it touches every part of my family and my sense of self. And um, that's so much of what I wanted to show. And so it feels really satisfying to have felt that I've accomplished that with seeing ghosts. Yeah, that's, uh, that's uh, so true. On, on a side note, uh, when I was chair of the English department, we offered Ann Cheng a job at UW and she turned me down. <gasps> Oh, <laughs> no, the one that got away, the one that she got away. To, she's for some odd reason wanted to go to Berkeley instead. Um, <laughs> but, uh, we've, be, made, we've become friends since then. So uh, that's great. Uh, I, I just want to say as we coming near the end here, um, uh, congratulations on the book as, a, as your, one of your former teachers. I'm just so proud of you uh, to, to see you're um, as an undergraduate wanting to be a writer and, and having that n not only uh, come to light, not, not only as a reporter, but also as a, now an author is just really gratifying to me. And it's like the first time I heard your voice on the radio, I think I was probably driving and I, I hear your voice and, and I knew it was you before you even identified yourself. And, and, uh, that was really, as a teacher, I think it was really thrilling for me to, to be present for both of those events, you know, hearing you on the radio and now seeing your book. So um, thank you for that. And also thank you uh, for inviting both Leilani and I to be a part of this uh, event and celebration. Um, the, the only thing that would make it better is if all 36 participants would buy your book. <laughs> <laughs> So that you, a copy for their family <laughs> and copies for for Christmas presents. Yeah. Well, I mean, it means so much. I mean, I know I said this at the beginning, but it, it's been so fun talking about this with you two. Um, and I still remember so many of those conversations and the exact ways you have made and defined how I think about Asian American studies um, and how hopefully rigorous I have been in my thinking and my cultural critiques. And um, I think because of that, I have never worried about centering our stories. And I've always had that be something that has been the top of my priority and what I've always wanted to do. So thank you. Um, thank you. Thank you for that. It's just, it's so special. It's so special being able to talk to you too. Um, yeah. Elliott Bay Book Company presented this conversation with Kat Chow on August 31st. To find the full event and other great Seattle area talks, go to our website, kuow.org speakers. While you're there, subscribe to our podcast and share your comments. Thanks for listening. Tune in again soon. Good night.